Scripture reading will be Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were all selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Good morning, everybody. Glad everybody could be out today. We especially are grateful for our visitors who are here. And... um, I appreciate very much the uh, the song service, the selection that Nick put together, just great uh, thematically for what we're talking about, not only to, uh, to uh, today, but um, our new emphasis. I appreciate Greg's prayer uh, from the, sta- the same standpoint, and all that that worship worshipful spirit. Um, this new thing that captivates the people. Uh, in the day of Jesus was based on the death and resurrection, the empty tomb, and, and Greg, uh, the other Greg. We have like three other Gregs, Greg, four, four other Gregs. No, we have Greg and three more, right? So three others, depending on which perspective. It's, I've always thought it's kind of a bummer for the other Mary, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Like, that's who you are forever. Um, so I'll let y'all decide who the other Greg is. But all the Gregs have done well today, and I appreciate it. All right, this year our thematic church-wide emphasis you know, for 2020 is worship. You can see that on the banners around the building and on our website. And if you've been here the last uh, two or three weeks in my preaching, you're going to see it in the community group material um, as well. And the current adult Bible class uh, in, out here in the auditorium is trying to get us to look at our own church through the lens of the book of Acts, which presents these historical glimpses into the life of the first century church immediately in the wake of of Jesus' death and resurrection in Jerusalem. And our teachers in this adult class, uh, Daniel and Sean and David, have been uh, leading us to ask questions like, what did the early church do? And have us to think about ourselves in light of of those questions. Well, today's sermon is going to bring those two, uh, two things together, those two uh, foci together. I'll get heat for that, whatever. Um, what? That's the word. Deal with it. I mean, I'm just kidding. Uh, that's English. Um, focus. Uh, together. What did worship have to do with the early church? All right? And, and, and what did worship have to do with the church did? That's question one. Um, or that, that's the question that brings to those two things together, I should say. We're looking at Acts, Acts 2, 42-47 which Jimmy just read for us, but we're going to be looking at a, a, a focus on, on worship as we do that. Now, if you think about our faith tradition, uh, for many of us at least, at least uh, who God's providence has brought to this location, it's been common to talk about uh, Christianity in terms of restoration, restoring the first century church and its simplicity and the way that it worshipped and its values and its identity in every way trying to be what the early church was um, at least in the good sense because you get some bad senses right out of the gate right you have Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5 of Acts 
So it's not like, first century Christianity is a lot of things, actually. But anyway, we want to, we know what we mean by that. We want to restore the good parts, the uh, apostle-approved parts, the Holy Spirit-led parts of the early church. And I think that's still uh, a noble and laudable uh, objective. Well, what role does worship have in a church that is truly like a first century church? We talk about restoring all kinds of things. What if we talked about restoring the awe, the worship? Because that's clearly part of it in this paragraph. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. I don't know why we got green stripes around everything today. but um. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Cool. Um, so when you, when you download, I'll make a, you, did you announce that yet to the church? No, I didn't. Yeah, start, starting today, we're recording the audio of the sermon and class, as well as a video recording that shows the PowerPoint slides and the audio overlay. So that'll be behind the member wall on the website at some point. You'll be able to watch it on your computer. Also. In other words, you'll have, the audio, you'll have the PowerPoint while you listen. And I've, uh, th- that's so much more helpful. So I appreciate you doing that. Worth the green stripes. Um, Anyway, um, so this paragraph is, is one of those paragraphs that summarizes the daily life of this brand new church of Jesus. And one of the things it mentions here, as you can see in verse 43, is that awe came upon every soul. Awe. Awe came upon every soul. This is from the word uh, phobos, from which we get phobia. Um, it can mean fear. A lot of times it's translated fear in, in, the, in the Bible, like fear like scary fear, like anxiety fear. Uh, and the King James does translate that word that way here. Most of the other versions, if you look it up on like Bible Gateway or something, about 90% of them are going to have awe because uh, the word can, can have that meaning as well. And that contextually appears to be what it's talking about. They're not horrified right now. They're, they're in, a, in amazement of what's been going on. The tomb is empty. Uh, miracles are being done. Things like that. Um, what they thought was over is just beginning with Jesus and the kingdom that he's been preaching and is now uh, you know, bringing into the world. So you, you have here, awe came upon every soul. But the word does have the possibility of going both directions and uh, sometimes uh, having both at the same time. Uh, I mean, all through the Bible, we see this phrase, the fear of God, Right? The fear of God, it's one of the most important traits we can have. And it, it does carry this dual idea of, of a fear that induces wonder on the one hand and a fear that induces respect on the other. And those may seem to be intention for us in our minds, but actually that's not that weird. There are a lot of things that simultaneously uh, inspire fear as anxiety and fear as awe at the same time. I mean, think about driving along some... Uh, mountain road, you know, twisty, turny mountain road where you're going eight miles an hour, uh, and it's on basically a cliff over a 3,000-foot, you know, drop-off with no guardrails. Is that beautiful or is that harrowing? Yes. Some of you, it's probably not harrowing. To me, it is. I'm like, you know, but I, it's beautiful, too. Like, you can't not do it, kind of. You ever been at a real high place and you're like, wow, Grand Canyon, you're kind of like, I don't know, but yeah, I got to. It's like it's, like it's sucking you over almost. It, it's a weird feeling of, of beauty combined with uh, some, some anxiety. Uh, and there are many things like that. Think about uh, uh, Ty Sanders used to live in Hawaii. He's not here today, unfortunately, but he lived on the big island where Volcanoes National Park is. And he's talked to me several times about 
the weird feelings he would get standing looking at a volcano that is literally emitting a lot, you know, fire. And he, he said it was horrifying and mesmerizing. And he, he understood how like pagan religions could form over things like that. It, it's just transcendent. There's something about it that is, is awe-inspiring. Um, what else? I mean, the birth of a baby. If you've ever experienced the birth of a baby, either you know, having the baby or being in the room, it is awe-inspiring in both senses. It, it, there's some trepidation, to say the least, and yet there is a beauty and a wonder to that. So we have a lot of things like that. You know, people swim with sharks. Um, why? A lot of you are like, good question. No, I mean, they're amazing. Shark Week on Discovery Channel is amazing. They are amazing creatures. They might eat you, but they're incredible. So there's a lot of things like that. All right. Um, this early church was in awe. And um, I, I want to talk about uh, three important aspects of awe that we see in this paragraph that characterizes the life of the New Testament church. We're going to have to work on the green stripe, actually. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, maybe we can find a way to ha still have that and have the best of both worlds, like, like all. You know, there's a good side in it. <clears throat> or I can work on my, my neurotic personality, either one. Um, I'm not going to discuss all three of them today because we're going to do something a little different today. I'm going to give Daniel some minutes at the end of uh, the sermon period to talk about the community group material to sort of launch it and invite you to participate in that. Um, so uh, he will, he'll come up and do that and then issue uh, an invitation at the end of his few minutes there. So I'm only going to talk about one of those and then we'll try to continue, Lord willing, next week. All right? The one I want to talk about today is that awe for God. If we have a kind of awe like the early church had, if we're really going to be a first century church in all the ways, not just one or two we've plucked out, but all the things that we read about that are you know, Holy Spirit-led and apostolically guided, then one of those things is this awe that every soul had. And awe is a transforming thing. And that's the basic point I want to leave with you this morning, is the, the transformative power of divine awe. The transformative power of divine awe. Awe for God creates nothing less than a new kind of humanity. Think about that. A new way of being human, a new way of doing life comes from what you think, not about yourself. That's where we all start in the modern West. You need to, you know, do these things and, and kind of go into yourself or, or, or get more self-esteem or a thousand other things. The Bible kind of starts with another place. It says you really need to be in awe of God. And that, that will define you more appropriately. And a new kind of humanity will result. I want you to notice the radical change in these people. Many of these Jews who are from every nation under heaven had been in the crowd just a few weeks earlier shouting, crucify him, crucify him. They believed that it was this Jesus who claimed to be the Christ, the Messiah, the, the fulfillment of, the, of their own scriptures, our Old Testaments, was an imposter. He was a charlatan. He was deluded. He was a lunatic, something, but he wasn't what he was claiming. And they were saying, get rid of him. Put him on a cross. These very people in this audience that are being described in the paragraph that was read a minute ago for us, those who composed the early church, many of them had been shouting, crucify him, crucify him. In fact, in Peter's sermon, we get a nice picture of the before. We're going to do a before-after here. 
Peter says, after preaching this sermon and, and you know, talking about some of the Psalms, it prophesied an empty tomb. And noting that the, the tomb is empty, you've you got to deal with that fact. Jesus isn't in the tomb anymore. And we, they've had these Holy Spirit outpouring kinds of miracles. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The people in the audience were parties to the crucifixion of Jesus. That's the before picture. And they're convinced of it. That's why they say, being cut to the heart, what can we do? Brothers, what shall we do? We're doomed. The Messiah came and we missed it. The one we've been waiting for, we rejected him. In fact, we participated in his death. And Peter's answer is, in verse 38 of Acts 2, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. I'll actually loose those sins from your record. You'll be guilt-free if you repent of them and are baptized in the name of Jesus. And what's more, you'll be given this Holy Spirit that just fell on everyone so miraculously will be a gift that you have internally. Wow. Talk about a turnaround. And so the after picture is quite different. And that's the text that was just read a few minutes ago uh, by Jimmy for us in Acts 2, 42-47. We've got this group now who are devoting themselves to the teachings of those who followed Jesus. They're, they're hanging out in fellowship and participation with, uh, with these people, breaking bread in His name, praying to Him on a regular basis, witnessing the wonders and signs that His apostles are doing, sharing all their time together, sharing all their things together, praising God and so on. All of that is the after for these people who before, only a few weeks before, had participated in the crucifixion of Jesus. That is quite an incredible transformation. Their whole daily life is now focused on the same Jesus that they beforehand opposed. And it's because he was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead. These are transformed people. Don't we want to be transformed people? Don't we want our church and ourselves as individual Christians to look like a beacon, to look like something different that's compelling and magnetic that God is doing in us? Well, transformation starts with God. Transformation is empowered by God. It's not a matter of we need to get our act together and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and start following the rules better. We do need to follow the rules better. We do need to, I guess, in some sense, get our act together. The Bible does call us to holiness, but it never says that holiness grows from your own effort. In fact, it repeatedly nukes that idea. It explodes that myth over and over. And that's been the bane of religious folks throughout human history. Religion can also go awry. It's not just paganism or selfishness. Those things can be brought into religion in the name of serving Jesus. And so here is a lesson that God is the one who poured out His Spirit. God is the one in whose Son's name they were baptized. It was God's Holy Spirit that was given to each of them. God continued to work the miracles among them. And so the point I'm making is the engine that propels all transformation, the engine that will transform this church and your life is not you, it is God. And if we're not in awe of God, if we think we've got God in a little box wrapped up with a bow in our pocket, we can pull out when we need Him and manipulate Him and do this and that and 
pluck out th aspects of his teaching, but not all of it, and just sort of, uh, we control him instead of him controlling us, we will not be transformed. In fact, it's worse than nothing, because we'll sort of be inoculated against the real God thing. We'll be inoculated against the gospel. We'll think we have it, and we're living a life that isn't consecrated, isn't transformed, but we can't even be told anymore because we've lost the ability to be introspective and self-critical, because we think we've got it. It's like a, a vaccine. <laughs> you get just enough, you know, a sort of fake version of it to keep you from being um, susceptible to the power of the real thing. So, transformation comes from God. And it's no wonder that their all for God, in Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, all for God is mentioned right there along with the radical change in their way of life. I don't think that's a throwaway point. In fact, I think it's the heart of it. Now, there are two fundamental uh, human problems, two fundamental human problems that everyone faces that this new transformed community of believers presents a solution for, or a solution to. And I want to, through the balance of the lesson, talk about these two human problems. They're very basic, they're very fundamental, very elemental. Everybody, no matter where they live or when they live or uh, what their job is or what language they speak, these are human problems. They come from living east of Eden after the fall. And these two basic problems we're going to call the problem of family and the problem of fear. The problem of family and the problem of fear. Now, I don't mean uh, family in, in, in too literal, literal of a sense, like just your nuclear family or just your extended biological family or something like that. I, I, though it would include family that lives in a home or something like that, um, and all the people you're related to, whatever. I mean it really in the sense of just belonging. Belonging. So our God-given social capacity, the social dimension of being human. Everybody wants to belong. I realize there are introverts and extroverts and ambiverts and all the verts, but everybody wants to belong. We have different ways of getting re-energized and we have different terms upon which it's best for us and it functions best for us, that part of our nature, part of our DNA. But there are not many people, unless there's some pathology involved, who literally want to be by themselves in a cave for the rest of their lives. You know, like, like Gollum or something. That's not, usually we see, okay, you need some help. Right? We, we have a social capacity. God gave that to us. And there's really not a lot we can do about just the basic, uh, you know, component of our nature. This problem, it's a problem though because a whole lot of people don't find any kind of satisfaction for it. They, they're craving it. And it, that craving manifests itself, that longing manifests itself in any number of ways, but they, they cast about here and there and yon and, and long and, in an unfulfilled way for decades some, sometimes, looking for some way to belong. And so we have all of these faux sort of ways to belong that really are pathological in themselves, like you know, crime-filled gangs or you know, radicalization of, 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 of young men in prisons who have been just spat upon and stepped on and ignored their whole life and for generations and then they get radicalized in some prison. Why? Is it theology? Maybe. But it's also sometimes the fact that they're belonging now. And we have trouble resisting an appeal to belong, to truly be accepted, because that's something God put in us. Well, look at this. Acts 2, verses 44 and following says, All who believed were together and had all things in common. 
All these people who believed in Jesus, who saw the death and resurrection, or heard about it, and have now heard Peter's sermon and witnessed these events at Pentecost, and have been baptized for the remission of their sins and received the gift of the Holy Spirit, these people are together, and they have all things common. Their new life, their life, their identity, their being, their personhood, is life together. It was life in common. These are people who shared their lives. They were a family. We often talk about our church family. That's what it is. That imagery is used in the New Testament. Paul talks about the household of God, right? He's our father. We're brothers and sisters. It's a biblical image. Families share their lives. If they don't, that's another pathology. It's, it's very common. A lot of us struggle with that, right? But, but that's the goal. I think we all know that. Um, and if you have never experienced it, you, you still know. There's something in you. It's almost like a phantom limb, you know? Christians who share life-changing awe for God want to spend their time and their lives with fellow Christians who also share that passion. If you are just obsessed with the beauty of God, enraptured by the wonder of who God is, then I'll tell you who you want to hang out with is other people who get it. Because it's, you, the joy is completed when you talk about it, when you sing about it. What we just did singing together, there's something about that, isn't there? It's way better than just going down the road singing the song. Way better. There's something communal about that. It's a together activity, right? Songs, hymns, spiritual songs to one another, teaching and admonishing one another. It's collective by design, just like the Lord's Supper. That's a one another. Uh, that's why we do the chairs this way. It's not just, ah, let's try that. It, 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 we're trying to spatially reflect what the theology is. Um, anyway, um, do, so it raises the question, folks, do, to what extent are we like them in this togetherness, in this family dynamic, in this sense of belonging? How much do we share our lives together? How much are we like them? Do we share our time? Do you share your time with fellow Christians? How much do we share around each other's tables? They were doing that. How much are you willing to share your joys and your sorrows? How much do we share our weaknesses with each other in confession and prayer? You willing to be weak and vulnerable with fellow Christians? And I want you to notice something further. This togetherness extended to their possessions. Look at verse 45. So it says in verse 44 that all who believed were together and had all things in common. But then in verse 45 it says, and that included this. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, the proceeds to all, as any had need. Now, it's true, we talked about this a couple weeks ago in our, in our Bible class, that we're not in the same identical, at least in this church, same identical historical circumstances that necessitated their doing so. They've got uh, the, the dispersion, the Jewish diaspora is there for these pilgrimage feasts, the Passover and the Pentecost. They become Christians and they don't go home and they've got a lot of need. And, and so the people there in Jerusalem are taking care of that by selling their possessions and sharing and so on. Um, that's true. 
I, I don't want us, though, to um, become so literal and so historically focused that we lose the lesson and the principle behind it that's larger than that and that should resonate across many different historical situations. What's the principle in play? Isn't the principle in play that they are so together that when one hurts, they all hurt? There would not be any need among them. A later text in the book of Acts says, quoting Deuteronomy 15, where all Israel were told, as a matter of course, to take care financially of each other. And that's quoted in Acts 4. In fact, this phenomenon of each person sharing their possessions with each other to take care of the needs of each other is repeated several times in the early chapters of Acts. It's one of the clearest um, sort of kinds of behavior that we see in the restored church or in the church that we uh, say we want to restore. That's one of the clearest things in Acts 2 through 5 is that. It's repeated, I would say, probably more than anything. What's mentioned more, baptism or this in Acts 2 through 5? All it takes is one. That's true, but if something's mentioned a whole lot, you think maybe it's kind of important to God? That's a picture. And I, don't, I just don't think we should get lost in the weeds about, yes, it's not, we don't necessarily have to do that exactly, but we need to be doing things that look like taking care of each other. And there could be a lot of different situations that are slightly different, but, but the exact same in principle. Human togetherness. Human connectedness in Christ is an abiding implication of resurrection life. That's eternal. Living life in light of the resurrection means our togetherness is going to have a financial, material component. Over the past 15 years, a, a series of scientific studies have focused on the nature and effects of experiencing awe. In fact, there's a center at, at uh, University of California in Berkeley called the Greater Good Science Center. And they collect a lot of science, like it's mainly neurology, psychology, sociology stuff that, you know, that's actually uh, empirically studied, you know, science, peer-reviewed journals and uh, journal articles and books and things like that, um, that collects all the ways that, that science suggests uh, life could be better, that civilization could be better, more compassion, more... Um, you know, empathy, more uh, you know, responsibility, and, and they, they look at brain science and things like that. To, it's science-based, so it's a pretty cool uh, place. You should check it out. Anyway, they put out a white paper collecting some of these results, and I read over it, and I, I want to share with you the results of, of two or three of these studies. One of them suggests that, and there's actually been a lot of studies, there's a whole big footnotes apparatus at the end of it, so it's a lot of studies over the last 15 years, but a, a series of these studies has shown that experiencing awe, and they're not coming at it from a religious standpoint at all. These are secular, you know, it's, just, it's a university. Um, experiencing awe, humans experiencing awe, whatever their religion, wherever they live, whatever, um, creates this phenomenon called the small self. The small self. Meaning, the more that you experience something that is just wonder-inducing, you know, jaw-droppingly beautiful or awe-inspiring, <coughs> There is this common phenomenon worldwide, phenomenon worldwide, where the person who's experienced it begins to feel really, really small in comparison with the rest of the universe. And it's often a very positive feeling. And, it, you know, awe, awe is induced by a lot of different things. So it might be, uh, you know, you standing at, a, at an overlook looking at something like snowy mountains, you know, and 5,000 foot elevation change or something like that. 
Not many people who look at that and go, eh. Right? So maybe that's your thing. Maybe it's a glorious sunset or sunrise. Maybe it's a, a Mozart concerto or whatever kind of music. There's just chills, goosebumps that you get. Maybe, um, you recognize that? Maybe um, it's a Monet's Water Lilies or some painting. You know, it's not for nothing that people go to these art museums and you, they're just standing there like this. You know? There's any number of ways, but those who experience awe begin to feel like they're very, very small in the scheme of things. Another set of studies says that those who experience the most awe, human beings who experience the most awe, show higher levels of empathy for other people and connectedness, capacity to connect to other people. So if you're a person who almost never has awe, these studies show that you're less likely to want to connect to anybody and less likely to feel empathy and to get in other people's shoes and feel their pain. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you've not been made to have that small self feeling and you still feel pretty, pretty large, not, in other words, kind of narcissistic, you're kind of the center of things, well, you're not going to probably need to connect to people very much and you're probably not going to feel much empathy. They need to get their act together. But if you're really small, then you're sort of out of your own way. And I think sometimes our problem is we, don't get, we can't get out of our own way. We're too big in our own minds. And awe shrinks us. And we begin to feel more connected to other people. And a third study, or set of studies, shows that people whose lives are most impacted by awe have the highest levels of financial generosity. Is this starting to sound like Acts 2? Awe filled every soul. They had all things together and in common. There's your connectedness. And they begin to sell their possessions and help, help each other in their needs. It's almost exactly what Acts 2 is saying, driven by awe for God. I just find that fascinating. And the, these studies have zero to do with God or the Bible. Uh, other than saying that a lot of people, what, what moves them to awe is a religious experience. They do acknowledge that. But they're not talking about any specific text or Christianity or anything like that. All right, let's plug that all back into the picture we have in Acts 2. Here's these people who've experienced the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They've been convicted and then rescued from the charge of killing the Messiah, God's Messiah. And so now they're overcome with this awe for this God who is transforming their whole life, their whole existence. They feel small in the presence of this fearful but loving and huge God who's defying death in the grave, in the tomb. And they now begin to connect to other people who've had or who need this same experience. And they begin to generously, generously give of their things in radical ways that human beings don't typically do. Why? Because their whole perspective has changed. And it began with awe for God. So that's the first problem. The second problem, really quickly, is the problem of fear. The craving for family and also the challenge of fear are addressed in this new community, this new kind of way of being humans that comes in the wake of the cross and resurrection and the all that those things produce. You know what? One of the most powerful <coughs> elemental impulses, one of the most powerful emotions and motivations in, in humanity, in human beings, is fear. You think about the things people do because they're afraid. Whole industries 
would be out of business if people, if fear were about, if everybody really believed and practiced perfect love drives out all fear, 1 John 4, 19, our theme verse for last year, the basis for our church mission statement on the website, perfect love drives out all fear. If that were practiced and believed by everybody in the world tomorrow, we could start ticking off the industries that would go out of business like that. You are very motivated by fear. Don't say you're not. What the doctor tells you, what the political candidate tells you, my goodness, they are experts at manipulating, creating fears. We talked about that a little bit in Sean's class on Wednesday night. It's one of the most powerful impulse for good reasons. We survive because we're afraid of things. But the thing is, the devil can warp that and get us afraid of all kinds of things that aren't scary and make us not afraid of things that are scary. Besides that, fear's not supposed to be at the heart of Christianity since perfect love <laughs> casts it out. Note to self, if I'm mainly motivated in my religion and the way I approach the Bible and the way I think about Christianity by fear, probably something's off. If the God who is love tells me perfect love, completed love, the ultimate expression of love gets rid of all fear. Guess what? We find these very disciples who've recently forsook him and fled. Mark says it wasn't just Peter who denied Christ. Every one of the disciples, when Jesus is on the cross, forsook him and fled. That's what Mark's gospel tells us. And now those same individuals are standing boldly before the governing authorities and the theological authorities, people like the Sanhedrin, the council, who are backed by Roman power and Roman soldiers, and they've been told, don't preach Jesus and the resurrection anymore. And it says that they preached it anyway, and they did so with boldness. Acts 4, 11 through 13 says, This Jesus who is rejected by you, this is Peter and John speaking, He's become the chief cornerstone of God's building. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They've just been told, don't say this anymore, and they just say it in their face. And it says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You know what, I think sometimes my problem, and I'll project on you, maybe our, our, all of our problems sometimes, is that we haven't really been with Jesus enough. We don't have enough all because we don't really spend time with Him. We talk about Jesus. That's different. We redu reduce Jesus to a handful of propositions or things we do in the assembly or something. But there's a difference in knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus. Being in awe of God. And when you're in awe of God, people can tell. They will recognize that you've been with that God who raises the dead. And we find these very disciples who had recently forsook him and fled, standing up and preaching with boldness. And the reason it all happened is because of the resurrection. They had witnessed an unearthly power before which they were in utter awe. And the fear of God had swelled to the point of dwarfing the fear of men. And that's what's got to happen. All of us have fear. If we don't have fear at all, just like elementally, in our raw state, there's something wrong with us. But here's God coming along and saying, you know what, I've got that covered. I'm a bigger thing than this thing you fear. 
Let me close with this quote, and then I'll give the rest of the time to Daniel. The only thing, this is Paul David Tripp in a book called All, the only thing that has the power to defeat fear, think of your anxieties, your fears that you deal with, and then think about this quote. The only thing that has the power to defeat fear is fear. That's interesting. But he says this, only when the grander fear of God rules your heart will you be free of all the little fears in life that chip away at your heart. When you live in a reverential awe of the magnitude of God's power and authority and are stunned by the fact that He exercises His power for His glory and your good, then you can be free from all the anxieties that make you timid and rob you of joy. Because you are in awe of who God is and because you know that this awesome one is in you, with you, and for you, you do not live in fear of people, occasions, or situations. Occasions is messed up. It's messing with my brain. All right, that, that's all for today. I, I just want you to think about how central all was to the early church. And over the course of the next few weeks and months, this year, we're going to try to focus in on and, and develop a greater all for God uh, because it's all around us. We just gotta, we've got to have the disciplines and, the, and the, the sort of commitment to focusing our eyes and our ears on the right things so that we don't become awestruck by something else that's merely a created thing and not the creator. Thank you for your lesson. Daniel will now uh, take the floor.